Welcome to the Summer Sessions on the Final Draft Podcast. My name is Andrew Bopel and we are going to be dipping back into the Australian Classics Book Club, rediscovering an incredible work of Australian fiction. Here on the Final Draft Podcast, we are all about books, writing and literary culture. Final Draft broadcast from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And the show, the conversations, they're all about exploring Australian writing. From debut authors to as we've been doing all summer, the classics that you know and love. These conversations are a chance to discover or rediscover what makes the author's storytelling unique, what they have to say about who we are, the stories that we tell, and how those stories make us who we are. Now, two SCR broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I record on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I begin each show by acknowledging the traditional owners of these lands and pay our pay my respects, pay our respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Today on the show, we are going to be looking at Moral Hazard from Kate Jennings, one of the most modern and seemingly least Australian, at least on the surface of the Australian Classics Book Club. This is still an incredible and entertaining Australian novel, an Australian classic for us to discover. Thank you for joining me all summer long in the Australian Classics Book Club. It is great to look back, but I also want to look forward. And coming up in February, we are going to be getting back to regular programming. We're going to have some incredible new authors, debut authors, new books to discover and uh, to introduce you to. So I'm really excited for that. But today we're diving into the Australian Classics Book Club with Moral Hazard from Kate Jennings. It is time for another classic of Australian fiction in what we uh, rather disingenuously call the Australian Classics Book Club. Now, this month, we're going to be discussing Moral Hazard by Kate Jennings. I am joined, as always, by my uh, my co-host, my, my friend David Winter. He is a senior editor at Text Publishing. And this month, we are also joined by literary agent Margaret Connolly, who was agent to Kate Jennings and is going to be such a valuable uh, insight into so much of our conversation. Welcome, David. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. Now, we're going to be discussing Moral Hazard, the wryly observed tragedy of Aussie expat Kath in the financial capital of the universe, New York. Set in and through the mid to late 90s, when we meet Kath, she is a speechwriter for a not-quite-top-tier investment bank. Despite her leftist leanings and fading memories of student activism in the 60s, Kath's been forced to take this job after her husband, Bailey, is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Older than Kath, but young for the disease, Bailey's design is Bailey's decline is quick, and Kath must make some serious cash to pay his medical expenses. This book was affecting this book was funny and and sad i i really loved it but before we get into exactly what moral hazard brings to us david can you tell us who kate jennings is sure uh well kate is uh, an interesting figure in australian literature she's certainly not at the center of it she's been an expat for many years uh, uh a radical thinker over the years and her uh her claim to fame rests on a relatively small body of uh, fairly small books, but they're all uh, brilliantly written, really perfectly formed. Uh, she was um, she was a student radical uh, in the early 70s. She came to, she grew up in, in country New South Wales and then went to, uh, to Sydney, to Sydney University. And she uh, she came to prominence when she, uh, she spoke at a rally about the Vietnam War. 
and and this speech that she gave is is credited with kicking off second wave feminism in Australia. I love the line uh, that's always quoted from the speech. It is, "How many of you would get off your fat piggy asses and protest against the killing?" and victimization of women in your own country. So right from the start, Kate was uh, someone who was going to get in people's faces and make them think about what was going on. Uh, in the 70s, she produced uh, poetry and an anthology of w women's poetry. And then she moved to New York City and she produced essays. She was a, an editor, a travel writer. She met a, an older artist and designer called Bob Cato. Uh, and they married, and uh, not all that long after that, uh, he developed Alzheimer's disease, and uh, Kate had to take a job in corporate speech writing to um, uh, to pay the bills, and it was quite a remarkable uh, turnaround in kind of in her interests and where where she applied her her skills. Uh, she published a novel called Snake, which is extremely uh, well regarded by by many readers in Australia, and that was based on her uh, younger years in country New South Wales. And then she channeled her experiences of both her husband's uh, illness and uh, her her job on Wall Street into uh, Moral Hazard, her second novel and uh, the one that we'll discuss today, which won a number of prizes and uh, I think stands up as a really uh, perfectly shaped small book about the, uh, the, the horrors of work and the, the horrors of, of Alzheimer's. And uh, many of Kate's essays written over uh, a number of years, the past few decades, have been collected in a, a very good volume called Trouble, which was published by Black Ink um, some years ago. Uh, but perhaps Margaret could fill us in a little bit, bit more about the life of and, and beliefs of Kate, who is such a an interesting radical, who's sort of she sort of shifted perspective uh, in many ways. Can I can I also add to that, uh, Margaret? Because hmm. there are these obvious parallels um, in in Kate's biography between Kath and Bailey's circumstances, and I was really curious reading. Should we simply view these biographical details as as the fertile ground for moral hazard, or was there something really personal being explored on Kate's part? Um, well, I think that the, the more you, you work with writers, the more you see this, or with novelists, um, that so much is inspired from their own experience. But the point is they, they then kind of transmute it into something which is very different. So certainly for Kate, a lot of the, her biographical details match to an extent with what's in Moral Hazard. Um, but... You know, she's turned it into something, well, which is a work of art and, you know, and which is so different. Um, I always think it's extraordinary that someone, um, I mean, she, she was a woman with certain views who lived in a certain way. Um, and then it got to the point where in order um, you know, to keep her husband going, um, she had to go and work on Wall Street. And um I mean, she's an incredibly loyal person and a person with an extraordinary gift for friendship. Um, and, you know, that's certainly you know, something all her friends talk about. I mean, she's one of those people, if, you, um, if, if you're a friend of Kate's, you tend to really like other friends of Kate's who you meet. <laughs> she, she, um, she has a certain kind of taste um, in her friendships. Um, David talked about, about this shift in perspective. I mean, one thing which is always interesting about Kate is... I think her basic kind of moral sense and moral principles have, have always remained the same. But I think she's also someone um, 
she always thinks and she always reads and she does change her mind on things. Um, you know, she looks at different circumstances and so she sees it through her own kind of um, moral and intellectual sense. Um, but it's always interesting to talk to her um, you, because she always just has such interesting and thoughtful views about things. There's a great uh, line late in Moral Hazard where Kath, uh, who is the wisecracking Australian bedrock feminist, unreconstructed left-winger, says she's realised that conservatives aren't the enemy, liberals aren't the enemy, bullshit is the enemy. <laughs> and I wonder if that's sort of, uh, not to be too biographical about it, but whether that's Kate in a nutshell, that you, you've got to think correctly, you don't want to be uh, enthralled to dogma. Yes, I mean, she's someone, I, I think she really tries very hard to think very clearly. And I must say, that line often occurs to me. Um, Especially uh, now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, in a world of Particularly <laughs> um, you know, in the kind of complex times that we're in. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, she, she maintains, she has a particular way of looking at the world. Um, but, yes, it, it's just the, um, I mean, she thinks clearly and she speaks very clearly and she writes so clearly. I like clarity for her. Is, is just so crucial. Um, and, and she's certainly someone, you know, when you talk to her, um, it's always incredibly enjoyable to do it. And, you, and you, you talk about anything and everything, but you're kind of conscious of extending your own understanding and your own thinking and your own ability to think because she's that kind of person. And certainly she's someone, any book or, or any poet or, you know, anything she recommends, um, it's always going to be, um, it's always going to be really, really interesting. I just wanted to note something that to kind of frame probably all of my thoughts as we go on discussing moral hazard, and that's the extraordinary voice and the extraordinary way Kath emerges on the page. I realised uh, about halfway through reading, and I read this book very quickly. I mean, it's not a it's not a huge volume, but I still I was I was diving into it as often as I could, and I realised Kath had become less a character on a page, and I was reading it like I was receiving news of a friend or it was someone that I, I, I felt close to, I desperately wanted to catch up with and and knowing the worst would likely happen, I still wanted the best for. It, mm. it became very personal. Her writing is, um, well, I hate these sorts of adjectives, but it's really crystalline. It's, mm. it's somehow paired back everything that might, all the artifice that might sit between uh, the writer putting down the words and the reader absorbing them and it does it does get right into your head, and I completely agree. Kath is Kath is in the room with you, telling you this story, and it's uh, incredibly uh, it's incredibly hard to hear the details of it. But then, you know, we also should uh, note that it's incredibly funny in a lot of places too, because of all the wisecracking. Yeah, I mean, Kate's always someone um, as a writer and as a person. She always sees the funny side of things, anything that happens. You know, she always does that. Um, and look, in terms of the voice, it, it, it's just such a beautiful voice in the novel and so simple, but it's that kind of brilliant, elegant simplicity that is so crafted um, and, you know, that she's worked so hard to do it. But yeah, I think you do immediately. Well, my first reading of it, she actually, she'd come to Australia and she had the manuscript and she was incredibly nervous. And it literally, I think it's the only time I've ever had to do this, but I was sitting at my kitchen table and she gave it to me and she kind of walked around the garden with my husband while I read it, mm. um, which no pressure, of course. <laughs> um, but it just was such an amazing piece of writing. And, and 
voice is there. Um, well, as you say, it, it, it's there on page one, um, and you just can't stop. You, you can't look away, can you? Something else I want to acknowledge about the the voice, because coming into this book, it. Well, I guess where we locate it, this is a book of New York, of Wall Street, of finance, and, but we're talking about it in the Australian Classics Book Club. Now, we have an Aussie author, we have an Aussie protagonist, but I think if there was any doubt for a reader approaching this book that it's an Aussie book, it's an Aussie classic, it is dispelled in that first line, Cat's opening voice, how would you have me write about it? Bloody awful, all of it. Um, there is, there is as, as American as the setting is, there is something so Australian about everything that happens because we're with Kath the whole way. I think that's right. I mean, I, uh, I was sort of hoping we'd touch on this because it was a brief discussion in here when we, uh, we always like to push the boundaries of the books that we can include under the banner of Australian classics and uh, most obviously by putting New Zealand ones in there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, you know, very quickly people in here said it is just so Australian, this book. And that's kind of what's interesting about it uh, really is that it's the, the outsider's perspective on uh, on Wall Street. I mean, you know, the individual outsider, but also someone from another country who's sort of infiltrated, you know, Kath is undercover. This is our most modern classic that we've dealt with so far. We're sort of moving, we're moving into the present. Uh, last month, we discussed Boyd Oxlade. We were in the 80s. Now, we've, we've come right up to the beginning of the 2000s. What do you think, um, looking at a book like Moral Hazard uh, and reading this as an Australian classic, shows us about where we are going to be reading Australia uh, moving forward, I hate that phrase, moving forward, sorry, mm. but into the future, like, well, are Australian voices going to be out in the world? Are we going to be looking at uh, adopted voices as part of our canon, yeah. I guess you might want to call it? I'm, I'm, I'm certain that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every, uh, I mean, there's no way to answer that without a cliche, but we are in a globalised world of writing as well as of uh, of everything else, and uh, I mean, I think I think that's going to be a very good thing, so long as uh, the very local stories are, are also told. Uh, but we should celebrate a book uh, like this for its internationalism. I think. Does someone? Does a voice like Kath then teach us a little bit about who we are as Australians? Do we do we see something in her attitude that? Uh, we might might say admire and emulate. Some, I mean, that's that's a power of literature to show us something of ourselves, but maybe also something to aspire to. Well, it's a, it's a very Australian sensibility, I think, particularly the humour, but also, I mean, you know, you're talking about the start of the novel, um, and it's also um, it's where she says, um, "I'd rather eat garden worms than be earnest or serious or sentimental," because that's so strongly, I think, Kate's voice. It, it's looking for something. That sees the humour, that sees the humanity, um, and, and 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 it's just there the whole way through the book. I mean, it's a, it's also I think I, I think the clear-eyed thing of Kate and the fact you know that she was an outsider who went into this world. Um, certainly, anyone who'd read this book before two thousand and eight didn't quite get the same sense of surprise about the global financial crisis because you basically, you know, you read this novel and the kind of sense you had of what was going on in there, um, you know, it, 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 it did feel like some kind of ticking time bomb. Um, and and so what happened, well, of course, it was a surprise, but but it was all there. And I think it was there because, because of Kate's very clear-eyed Australian outsider perspective. 
Yeah, Kath describes herself as commuting between two forms of dementia, two circles of hell. We've talked about, uh, well, we haven't actually touched very much on it. We will definitely get more to it. But uh, Kath's husband, Bailey, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And the, the twin narratives are of her life with him and his his decline. But then also going into the office, this other form of dementia, this circle of hell and... Yeah, I was, I was curious about what you just said there, Margaret, because I very much felt like I was reading this in a way that would be quite different to its, the initial readers. And uh, there was a lot that went on, particularly Kat's conversations with Mike, where they, they unpack the financial systems that I thought would read very differently in a world that has made, uh, made phrases like bubbles and, uh, you know, global, global financial crisis part of the everyday lexicon. Can you give us any perspective on how the book looks even across the space of sort of 15, 16 years? Like I said, I can only speak as one individual reader and as someone, um, well, you know, certainly, you know, as David and I were talking about, uh, you can can maybe keep the idea of a quant in your head for about five seconds, but then it goes. Um, I, I... well, it almost feels that there's a kind of predictive quality to the novel mm. um, because y- y- you look at what's happening in that fictional bank um, and you look at the way people are behaving and you look at the kind of greed and the, the, the grasping for money um, and it seems like those elements have really only gotten worse and I, th- I, think, I think we've all become more cynical about them. Um, I think we all feel that same sense of what can we do about it um, uh, but but uh, it's really you know, what she's saying. Um, you, you feel it, it's come to pass and it's continuing um, more strongly too. I th- I think this novel would be hard to write if it uh, if it were done with the knowledge of the of the crisis as it happened because mm. anyone writing it would have to uh, struggle with the the effects that rippled down so brutally to the. Uh, to ordinary people, you know, and suddenly losing their houses and so on. Uh, in this novel, uh, Kath and Mike, who is the, uh, the, the smart guy, who also a former radical, student radical, who's in, in Wall Street and higher up in the chain, uh, they can afford to be a little bit flip about what happens to executives who get defenestrated and, um, c- companies that get shut down because essentially it's a whole lot of bad people getting their comeuppance. Uh, but of course, the the global fan- financial crisis showed us that in fact, those people didn't really, not many of them got their comeuppance. Instead, ordinary people had to carry the can. There was... So I like the lack of sentiment in this or sentimental sentimentality, I guess, in, was... in the novel. There was definitely a sense reading it, um, thinking to myself, we had this in our hands. How... How could we have held this for? How could we have held this for six, seven years and still let what happened happen? But then, Kath also, or Kate and Kath, um, those names are going to make. I knew I'd slip up eventually. Kate deals with this, with this idea of of expendability. Horace is one of the executives that that Kath writes speeches for, and according to Horace, only the market matters. It's going to solve everything. So you've got like this sort of fundamentalist market liberalism. But we then see ultimately that, yeah, Horace even, even Horace is expended. Only Kath is the one who leaves of their, her free will. But that market solution is inexorable. And I, I saw 
the movement of the market sort of operating in parallel to the movement of Bailey's Alzheimer's, they both sort of progress on their own motion and they spare no one. I wonder if part of what Kate was writing shows us that even knowing, even having something like this in our hands, no one was ever going to let um, something slow down the market. Nobody was ever going to stop it because they just believed that it would be okay. Mm. There's that great line uh, where Kath says, Mike and I, Flotsam from the 60s, weren't the idealists, not by any stretch. Horace was. He idealised unfettered markets, which he genuinely believed had the power to create a brave new world. So uh, it's the cynical radicals who actually uh, are sort of pessimistic, but all the people with the the real power uh, are caught up in their delusion. And also it's in their financial interest to be so. Um, mm. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, the sense of greed that's there so strongly, um, mm. it, it, it's one of the really, uh, yeah, very strong things in the novel that um, and the kind of rationalizations that bankers find um, when they're thinking and talking about money and financial systems. It's a beautiful personal realization of, of the power that those things, these uh, these systems that seem so abstracted in the day-to-day but have so much power. I'm, I'm going to confess to having gone through a period of, of economics kind of geekdom where I read a lot of the history and I actually, in, in Moral Hazard, I see this beautiful personal drama kind of play out, the larger drama of that kind of Keynes and Hayek um, battling for the, the life of the financial systems in the 20th century. That was, that was writ large but in a really geeky way and, and here through Kath we see it playing out in a personal drama, perhaps a more relatable drama, and and what for her experience with Bailey, I guess, is is something inevitable. I, I mentioned I mentioned tragedy when we started because there is there is an element of the tragic to this. From page one, we know where this is going, and we know we can't stop it, but we stay for the ride. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's sort of somehow uh, she's put together one and one and made three because uh, you would think that to have a novel about financial markets or a novel about Alzheimer's might really be off-putting to a lot of people and therefore to put them both together might make it even harder to read. But I think it is that personal angle that's brought about by Kath and Bailey's situation that gives you the way into understanding uh, that much bigger thing that's going on in the financial system. Mm-hmm. And the, the parallels don't feel forced to me. I don't know what uh, if that struck you as well, but the, the sense that everything is happening and it, the events are twinned and it doesn't feel like it's being shoehorned into that. No, far from far from forced. I found myself almost racing through each chapter because they sort of they they go chapter to chapter. We're in we're on Wall Street. We're with Bailey in the nursing home, and I I, I wanted to race between each one because I really was. I was interested in where both uh, both stories were going. Um, Margaret, I, I had a thought to send and I was wondering, was, did you ever have a sense that there was something cathartic about this book for Kate, given the, the, the personal parallels? Um, it was a book, she, she certainly wrote it, the, the manuscript very quickly um, and she needed to write it. I mean, it's a novel, um, it, it's not a memoir. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there are a lot of differences um, uh, you know, to her own experience, but I, I think that these kind of um, novels get written in the kind of white heat of the moment. Or you have another writer, say, an Amy Whitting, who had an experience in a TB sanitarium as a young woman and just could not 
talk about it basically for many, many years. And then when she was in her late, late 70s, early 80s, she wrote what became um, Isabel on the Way to the Corner Shop, a, another text classic. Um, but she needed that distance from the experience to write it, whereas I think for Kate, um, you know, she sat down and, it, and she wrote it very quickly. Now, <laughs> we've we've sort of come to a thread there. I I have a few other little thoughts jotted down in on the page in front of me. But do we have any areas we'd like to move into, or should we? We've gone about sort of twenty plus minutes. We can also look at whether this is a natural wrapping up point. Um, yeah, I think it'd be good briefly to talk about sort of healthcare and the nursing home, um, but. Whatever you feel comfortable with, Andrew, if you're happy with what you've got. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I can. I, I then just muck around with with music and ads if um if we go long or go short. Uh, that's that's the magic of pre-recording. Um, well, yeah. So um, that's actually probably an area that we we have given short shrift to at the moment is the story of Bailey and Bailey's character, who is who is very much. He begins so vivid, and then we. I feel like we learn about Bailey through the absences that Kath notices and and then also through the the demise in his situation, yeah, this healthcare situation that Kath feels increasingly unable to control. Mm. Um, I think for anyone who's had any connection with uh, aging relatives going into a nursing home, it's uh, it's just it's horribly real uh, and it, it is. It is still beautifully described. There's the moment where Kath, um, about halfway through the book, is forced to take Bailey, put her, Bailey into a home. She's been, he's been on a waiting list. She's got the call. She's got to respond immediately. This is it. Uh, he, he has to leave. And, uh, she, she puts him into the awful room and she's got photographs with her. He tears the photographs up. Uh, she's brought a, a bronze cast and throws it across the room and he yells at her and he said, you did this, you. And and she writes, uh, we left him surrounded by rude misery and the stink of failing bodies. I had consigned him to a place where behaviour was infantile, instincts animal, a place of last things. Um, and it's, uh, it's really quite unbearably poignant, I think. That language too, I mean, I... Throughout, I was struck by the language, but that parallel and the tragedy of, of Bailey's situation, I felt like that that description was also somehow directed at Wall Street, like the, that behaviour. She was, she could see a very literal performance of that uh, in, in what she was perhaps seeing as a moral performance with her, her colleagues on the street. And I loved the way Kate could evoke that pathos but then also use it in in a way that serves the the both the narratives. I'm not sure if that struck anyone else, but when you reminded yeah, me of that yeah. line, David, that that really jumped out. I think out. you're right. I think it's just that the uh, the bankers, in theory, have, have choice. You know, they have mm. um, um, they have some. You know, the, they could not do what they do. They could could not be performative. Whereas Bailey is just consigned. Uh, you know, he, he's. Uh, relegated to his illness and his his diminishment. It's probably selfish to well, it's definitely selfish of me to to note this, but something of 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 reading this was was eased for me, and I, I appreciated that in the reading. But it also made the the harder moments 
more meaningful in the way that Kate could be so funny. There was, there was so much humor. And I re- recall myself to, um, I think it was earlier in the book, uh, she's noting a scene where they're discussing a couple with Alzheimer's who, um, who each go through these these stages of trying to evict the other from their house because they can't recall each other, but then in their moments of lucidity turn on their carer and try to evict their carer. And it's 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 a very funny moment and it it eases me through those those scenes which could be so difficult. Well Kate's it's one real of those writers humor, and those people it? that I mean basically if you don't laugh you cry and mm. she laughs. Um and, and not in a way that feels um Oh, Glee bore. Um, but, you know, she finds the humour in those moments. Um, and that's her way, I mean, that's her way, I, I think, in a sense, as a writer, uh, you know, and, and as a human being, um, in terms of coping with suffering. It's always, it's always not to feel sorry for herself. Um, it's always not to be sentimental. Um, and the wisecrack, you know, the joke, um, is, is, the, is the way that you try and get through it. You are tuned into 2SCR 107.3, and this is the Australian Classics Book Club on Final Draft. I have been discussing Kate Jennings' Moral Hazard with David Winter, who's the senior editor at Text Publishing, and Margaret Connolly, who's literary agent to Kate Jennings and has offered us some amazing, invaluable insights for our discussion. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much, David, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, everyone, for joining me this week and every week for Final Draft. All summer long, we have been diving into the Australian Classics Book Club, rediscovering incredible works of Australian fiction. Today on the show, we talked about Moral Hazard from Kate Jennings. Just, I don't know if I've mentioned this uh, across the podcast this summer, but all of these books are available in the text classics range. Text are an incredible Australian publisher, and their classics range are a great way to look back at Australian writing. I'm I'm not paid for this. This is uh this is a plug of love and everyone at Text was so incredible when we were creating the Australian Classics Book Club. So just shout out if anyone happens from Text happens to be listening. I appreciate all that work we did and that we continue to do. <laughs> Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can reach out. You can get in touch. If you are loving the show, if you are loving the books you are discovering on the show, we'd love to hear about it. Find Final Draft on the socials at Final Draft 2SER or just email us, finaldraft at 2SER.com. My name's Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more incredible conversations from Australian authors here on Final Draft. But till then, happy reading and bye for now.